Hey guys, check out Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0, brought to you by Mama Jumbo Shrimp, a fully updated second edition, reviewed and revised by an expert panel of certified Italian wine ambassadors from across the globe. The book also includes an edition by Professore Attilio Scienza, Italy's leading vine geneticist. To pick up a copy today, just head to Amazon.com or visit us at MamaJumboShrimp.com. Italian Wine Podcast is delighted to present the series of highlights from the 2022 Wine to Wine Business Forum, focusing on wine communication and bringing together the most influential speakers in the sectors to discuss the hottest topics facing the wine industry today. Don't forget to tune in every Thursday at 2 p.m. Central European Time or visit winetowine.net for more information. Buongiorno, good morning everybody. Uh, welcome to this uh, session of Wine to Wine. I must confess that I am very, very excited to introduce you to the wine professional we host today, Peter Young. And I'm also thrilled at the topic that Peter is going to cover today. I find this subject very, very intriguing, very fascinating, especially for those like me who are nowadays, in these days, while you know, preparing budgets, business plans, confronted with uh, setting prices of ultra-premium wines and evaluate the consequences, positive and negatives, of uh, this very, uh, say, key exercise. So just a quick note uh, to introduce you to, to the guest today. Peter is a business uh, consultant. You will correct me if I'm not describing or, uh, let's say, uh, talking about you correctly. An impressive resume that spans from finance to marketing and business strategy, to name just a few. And Peter also boasts a significant track record of remarkable achievement also in the wine business and in the wine industry. And he's also author of a book that I strongly recommend that you download. I bought it, uh, I bought the digital version by the title of Luxury Wine Marketing. Uh, our hope is that uh, by the end of the presentation, uh, we ignite some uh, interesting, solid, uh, useful conversation uh, between us and, uh, and the audience. So we look forward to that. Uh, in the meantime, it's on to you. Thank you. Thanks, Tore. I don't know if to readjust because he's so much taller than me, but at least there's a stand here to make me slightly taller. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Uh, when Stevie asked me to present, she said, take any idea. And the theme is communication. I was, as she said, I love your book, take any idea. I was like, uh, okay. What is something that I thought would be a different twist on communication that no one else would be talking about? So I said, uh, well, first I emailed Pauline Vicar of Arrhenia to say, because I knew she was speaking too, and be like, let's not talk about the same thing and do different things. And then I thought, oh, maybe pricing. What pricing communicates as something that's a twist on what's inside the book, luxury wine marketing, but uh, isn't in the book either. So it was, this is somewhat new work, things I think about a lot, but don't always, um, they haven't written down and talked about. So it's a little bit new, so hopefully, uh, forgive any mistakes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, what well, price communicates. So, outside of the book, Luxury Wine Marketing, I also am the host and producer uh, with a friend of mine, 
of the X Chateau podcast, which is focused on the business of wine. And both of these uh, will have books in the book corner right after this. So what does price communicate? And I think we want to differentiate what we're not talking about before we talk about what we are talking about. So I think for commercial wines or mass market wines, if you want to call it that, that it follows standard economic theory. There's a very competitive market with lots of substitutes. So price tends to drive towards marginal cost and brand isn't as, it's important, but not as important. It's like if you go to, at least in my view, or when I've been to a French grocery store and you look at the row of Bordeaux, it's not quite clear what you're deciding from one picture of a chateau to another, right? You're looking at price most of the time. Fine wine is totally different. You're looking, brand is super important. The customer is completely different. People who are buying fine wines or luxury wines are often not buying wines from the supermarket. Uh, and the sales channels are different, whether it's supermarket versus specialty retail, fine dining, and direct-to-consumer being more important. Obviously, that's more of like uh, an American thing in a lot of cases, but in luxury, controlling the retail, the experience all the way through retail is an important element of what differentiates luxury from, from more commercial uh, pursuits. So what does price communicate for fine wine? And I think there's five things. Some of these things do overlap a little, but they're all different. The one is, what are you communicating in terms of your value proposition to your to consumers? Customer, are you trying to you know be a good value? Are you trying to say that you're the best in the world? What you when you price a wine, you're sending that communication. So one example from a winery that I, I used to help manage, Costa Brown in Sonoma. Our smallest production, rarest wine, was initially priced the same as all of the other single vineyards because it was a thank you to our long tenured members who had been buying for a long time. So we didn't want to, even though we could have priced it two or three times uh, more and it would have sold, we wanted it to be a thank you and that was part of the thought process behind the initial pricing. It, it is now actually priced more than all the other ones, but you're setting an expectation of quality when you price a wine. Like, what that price is sends in consumers' minds, this should be of a certain quality. And so that has a, is a big impact. And I think an interesting thing, more anecdotal evidence, but when I see wines that score 100 points from various different critics, especially the wine advocate, you usually see them in retail like around $300 or they get to $300 at secondary market. But then there's lots of wines that are priced above that, right? And what does that mean? Well. It's not about quality at that point, then it's more about brand value, which is sort of the, the next point, the brand reputation, where uh, you, know, you could be a $1,000 wine and that's more than just the quality that's inside the bottle. And so brand reputation is another thing you're trying to project as you price the wine. So for example, Harlan Estate uh, in Napa, when they first launched their wine, they priced it in 1996 at $65, which was the most expensive wine in Napa at that time. And now it's like $850 direct. So it's, they're setting an expectation of who they are in the marketplace with their price. Then there's also relative quality. And I, I tried to have a global set of examples here. So, you know, Gaia back in 71 doubled their price to match the top wines of Bordeaux and Burgundy to say that we are on par with those wines and they had to, you know, build up their sales again and get that message into the marketplace. But that was, you know, relative quality, but not just 
my brand is important, but and my quality is good, but how does that quality compare to you know, other wines of the world or even within your portfolio of wines, how does it compare to other wines that you sell? And then it's also about, you know, lastly, and this sort of ties back to the first one, this is almost like a circle, I think, but of what customers, what you think customers are willing to pay. Because we all would like, I think, not to price on cost, but to price on value. And what people are willing to pay is part of that value association. So one example of what I believe now is currently the most expensive wine in the world. Uh, I don't know how to say the name properly in French, but Liber, Liber Potter. Uh, they did a duck, Dutch auction of their buyers to see what they should set their price at. They only had 550 bottles, but it was 30,000 euros in 2015, which was an, outst uh, an amazing price to, to be able to accomplish. So this, this part is part, part, of the, uh, part of it too with, with pricing was so that I could pull lots of things from the book and make it easier to have a presentation. So, <laughs> so this price spectrum uh, comes from the book Luxury Wine Marketing is our luxury wine pricing spectrum that's focused on U.S. retail primarily in terms of the, the pricing. And so we have the first category of affordable luxury, $50 to $99 in retail. I have some restaurant equivalent pricing. Uh, but it's that taste of wine for a taste of luxury for the everyday buyer. There's a, you know, that's part of the value proposition communication. There's the association with luxury and luxury brands. If this is a second label or a second wine, um, and and the people who drink them. So sometimes this is about accessing a wine that you know people you look up to drink, and that you're able to have some association with that. Then 100 to 200 about is like what I call the everyday wine for the luxury buyer. It's special but approachable. This is what you know LeBron James might drink every day. So it's an everyday wine for some luxury buyers. And then you get to like 200 to 500, and these are more special occasion wines. So I you know had dinner a few years ago uh, with the guy who's the chairman of the NYSE in Atlanta, and you know the guy's got plenty of money very well-off person, and he said $300 was an occasion, it was a special occasion for him to buy that type of luxury wine, even though you, you objectively say he could be drinking that every day if he wanted to, right? But for him, this matched pretty well. It was like $100 for an everyday bottle and 300 was a special occasion. But what about the wines that are even more expensive than that? I think from 500 to 1,000, we call them icon wines, but because the brand elevates the price so much more than uh, just being what's inside the bottle itself. It's one of the iconic wines of the world. Um, but then there's a, even a category above that, which we call dream wines that are $1,000 plus. And that's partially because they're iconic, but they're also very rare and hard to find. And that drives the, the price of those wines up. So when we talk about price, we're mostly referring to what I call here the suggested retail price. But there's other prices that you need to consider to understand what messages they're communicating. And when I actually looked at this this morning and I thought, oh, the suggested retail price is what you're, as the producer, telling consumers. The average selling price or what's actually happening in the market, so the price that you see actually showing up in retail or in uh, restaurants because of any promotions that you're doing or, or people can't move it, is sort of more implicit messages that you're sending the consumer. So you're not saying them directly, but you're implicitly saying them through different promotions or other things. And then the secondary market with what your, your wine trades at, whether that's in retail or an auction or other thing, that's what consumers are telling you back. 
right? So that's the message consumers are telling you around what is your wine worth? Granted, there's a, a very small, mar relatively small market for that. So if you're, if there's only, you know, dozens of bottles trading on the secondary market, don't, don't think you can transact your entire production at that price. But so the average selling price is really important when, uh, especially if it's lower than the SRP, because you can move more wine that way. If it's on sale, you can sell more wine, but it may hurt your brand reputation and put you in a place of lower associated quality than, than others. Uh, and then the secondary market, when it's higher, it can improve your brand reputation, make people want to buy it and think of the investment demand. I just talk about two types of demand for fine wine and for luxury wine being consumption demand, people who buy it to drink it, and investment demand, people who are going to store it and resell it at some point in the future. And both of those are, are important as you get to the higher levels of, of wine. Uh, so when you're thinking about setting price, I like, especially for fine wine, I think of four key considerations that you have to think about. The first is quality. Like, if you don't have a good quality wine and that doesn't match the price, then it's just not a sustainable price. Like, if basically your quality level is like a $50 wine and you're trying to sell it for $200 or $300, people will discover that over time and, and not, uh, not be willing to pay for it. So, you know, an example there is Harlan, again, didn't sell their first releases of wine because it, he didn't think the quality was high enough. So even though he came out at the highest price in the market, he wanted the quality to be able to support that. And then brand strength, and this is a little bit harder to measure, but it's important to try and there's different proxies for it. But how strong is your brand? How much do people say, I always give the example of like uh, DRC, right? Like you can drink any Burgundy, even a lot of others, but DRC is singular in that if you drink DRC, it's not the same thing as drinking any other wine in the world. It's, it's unique and singular and that, that gives it that brand strength that makes it you know, able to have more pricing power. And competition is around the relativity, like where are you in your peer set or in the global peer set of, of price? And then you can also associate uh, quality and, and production levels with that as well to understand how you fit within the context of what you're looking at. And super relevant today, I think external influences are really important. I was having a conversation this morning just and last night around uh, tariffs and, and the global markets and the geopolitical actions, whether that's the US or China or the, their relations with Europe, can dramatically influence like demand for your wines and the markets available for your wine, which will impact you know, the demand and, and your price, what you can set the price at. One of the other things to look at even just as a macro thing today with the increased volatility and downward volatility of, um, of, of the financial markets is um, what does luxury wine correlate with? I hear a lot and read a lot of media that says, oh, luxury wine has done so well in the last few years, it's immune to the, you know, the macro markets and things of that nature. But you know, I did a study uh, back when I was at McKinsey from like the 1990s through the mid 2000s and the US, uh, the US wine market as a whole. And the market increase was on a CAGR of like 9% growth per year, right? 3% of that was volume and 6% was price. And so, I, you know, I had my team look at like, what is that correlated with? And what we discovered that the closest correlation was that the price went up with net wealth lagged by a year. 
So it, you, I kind of think of it as like, you make more money, you have more money in your bank account, you paid the taxes on it, now I can like step up and buy a more expensive wine. But why I think this is important is because net wealth has largely gone up over the last time period. And so the rich are getting richer, the poor are, are still struggling, unfortunately. And that has created the conditions for luxury to do really well over the last few years, even when the overall economy may not be doing uh, as well. And so theoretically that could be changing uh, depending on how the central banks choose to conduct their monetary policy. And important to consider when you're, you're thinking about raising your price. So when it comes to, to setting a new wine, pr the price of a new wine, we have to not just look at those four considerations, but also the volume that you're producing and the sales channels that you're going to be selling it in. So I took a quote from Antonio Galoni here that says, like, and I see this happen all the time being based in California, that new Napa wines with no track record come out at ginormous triple-digit pricing, like two, $300, and they have no, no one has tried the wines. It's not like when at other times, even Harlan back in the day, $65, even though the 65 is, you know, 1996 is probably 200 or something today, or 100, 100 something today with inflation, people could still afford to try the wines. Now, if you come out at three, $400 a bottle, people don't even get to try the wine. So two examples I, I took from, the, from my book if, is that if you're a new Napa winery, you're in Pritchard Hill, which is like the Rodeo Drive, and you're only making 200 cases, and you got a great score with a famous winemaker, blah, 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 whatnot. Well, it's just like every other wine, pretty much, that comes out of there. What should you price at, right? And my thought is, like, maybe you want to price at the lower end of that spectrum, so 175 to 250 a bottle, because you want to be associated with the top quality. You don't want to be a $50 bottle of wine. And even though a lot of the wines range from 150 to 400, you still want to encourage trial and have people try it for a bit. And since it's very small volume and you're primarily thinking about selling it direct, that should be easier in terms of making that sale. Whereas if you're a, a new or newly acquired Northern Rhone winery from Cote Routine, you're making a thousand cases, it's all going through wholesale and it gets a decent score, maybe 100 to 125. Because if you still want to be luxury, you want to be branded as luxury, but you need a lot more proof points in the market, especially if you're in retail and your wine is sitting on the shelf, whether literally or virtually, next to all the other wines of a similar type, people are gonna see the differences. And even though there are some like the Gigal Lala's that are $300 plus, there are many that are you know, sub $100 that are very high quality. And so you're still trying to be luxury. Maybe it's in that 100 to 125. Italian Wine Podcast, part of the Mama Jumbo Shrimp family. Uh, and then, so there's setting a new price and then there's, you have a price. What do you want to do when you change, when you need to change the price and you're not Bordeaux, which is more uh, market driven and goes up and down. So normally changing means taking it up in most cases. You have to look at uh, those four price considerations and understand where you are today to make that decision. So understanding wine quality or, you know, you're continuing to pump out great scores. We interviewed for uh, the podcast at Chateau Jeb Dunnick and was like, so how do, how do, you, how do wineries like, become luxury or top? And his view, which I thought was a, a normal answer, but wasn't nothing breakthrough, was 
you just need to have consistently great wine over and over again, right? Over the course of time, keep producing consistently great wine. It's like, okay, that, that's true. <laughs> but, all right. Uh, your brand strength needs to be important, and you can sort of measure that with secondary market premium, wine search or search rankings, or things like that. And, you know, the competition one is interesting because I think when you were low, if you think of the spectrum of wines relative to where you are, if you're actually low priced, it's easier to move up to the middle. And if you're high priced, if you're one of the top, it's actually easier to move up and to continue to move up because that means you've already established yourself most likely as the top in your region, right? And I see this all the time, especially if I look at Napa, at Harlan and Scream Eagle, whose price is you know, 800 plus dollars a bottle, they're way above everyone else. But because they've established themselves as sort of the cult darling, the, the wines that people want from Napa Valley, they continue to move their price up and they're able to uh, achieve that so far. And then as we just talked about, like the external influences of what's happening in the economy and whatnot make, make a big difference. I work with a, a Napa brand who just this year took their price from 350 to 425 a bottle in the middle of this, you know, markets crashing. And it did not work out that well for them <laughs> in terms of how their, their offering did. So some examples of that, uh, Domaine Perot Minot from Burgundy doubled their price from the 15 to 16 vintage. And according to um, Tribeca Wine Merchants, who we interviewed on the podcast, their people just stopped buying because they thought they have an association of that price and then to change it double in one year was a shock to people. So similar, not quite as fast, happened at Larkmead in Napa where they'd always been known for being great quality and great value uh, for the price within Napa Valley. And they doubled their price from about 2013 to 2016. And so they changed their value proposition. They were, you know, a value provider and then now they're market price. So they weren't you know, expensive when you look at the scheme of things and you can understand the owner wanting to do that to make enough money. But it was a shock to the consumer who said they had a consumer who was looking at the value there and now they need to find consumers who are just more interested in the quality. And so they had to really change their complete customer base and which also led to complete turnover of their team as well because there was a lot of uh, differences in how you sell with the different value propositions. So their team turned over as well. But you look at an example like Harlan that we've talked about several times already, increasing their price from $300 to 850 in less than 10 years without that much of a problem. And they're still selling out a small amount of wine, 1,500, 2,000 cases a year, but partly because they have a significant secondary market premium. So even though they sell for 850 now, on the secondary markets, the wines sell for 1,200 plus a bottle. And you know, I think I've worked with a lot of people who worked with Bill Harlan and he often said like, I need at least a 30% premium on the secondary market to be, feel comfortable that I'm gonna increase my price. And so he was able to do that. He's also expanded internationally, so sort of created more domestic scarcity and things of that nature to make you know, the supply demand balance in the US better to keep, keep this going. But he's made a lot, a lot of money this way by being able to increase price. Uh, so on, on that note, tracking secondary market pricing uh, helps you understand what pricing power you may have. Volumes tend to be pretty low. I, I developed this uh, for Casa Brown when I worked there. And we actually tracked bottles that were offered at least. So you could see that the volumes are pretty low. If you look at this, I don't know how easy it is to see, but the numbers are like less than 50 bottles 
being offered at any particular time. So it's not like a high volume of transactions are happening. And it's not even transactions is offering. But there's other sources of data that you can get this from, like LiveX or Wine Market Journal that have some transaction prices as well from auctions or from merchants that are selling globally. But understanding where where you are, where customers are, what customers are seeing in the marketplace versus what you're offering the price at your suggested retail price. And if there's a premium to that, then it's a, then you may have more pricing power. And then you know, importantly, what does discounting do? And I'm not saying don't discount because there's reasons that you may want to discount, but there's important trade-offs to consider. So you know, you can increase short-term sales because people psychologically like to feel like they're getting a good deal, they're buying it, and they still have the expected quality being at your suggested price because you say when someone buys a wine on sale, they said, I, buy $100, I bought a $100 bottle of wine that was $75, and so I got, a, I got a deal. My expectation is the quality is still $100. But it does imply then that you may be having difficulty selling your wine and that the brand is less desirable, so that has starts to erode the brand reputation and over time, it can push the relative quality of what you think, of what consumers think the category of wine that falls in goes down. And it may ingrain a habit of people knowing that they can buy this wine because it's having a harder time selling at a lower price and only being willing to pay that lower price and making it harder for them to you know, go back to retail at some point. So what are some alternatives that you can do to that? Well, you could have a second label or second brand, although the trade-off is that's a lot of work in terms of marketing potentially and, and launching a brand that's not a trivial task and you don't want to take away from your core task at hand. Uh, there are some retailers that focus on curation and may have like a fixed price wine club. So they you know, sell you six bottles of wine for X dollars and doesn't matter what the wines are inside, but so you can actually discount to them and people won't know what the price of your wine is. Or there's some people who are trying to do like upgrading, so you're paying $30 and getting at least $45 worth of wine or something like underground seller. And some people, when they sell direct, might have um, shipping subsidies or things like that. Uh, and so that's what setting price for fine wine communicates from my point of view an array of messages that have to be carefully considered from, from the winery, so those five things, the, what you think your value proposition is as a consumer, what the expected quality of the wine is, reflection of your brand reputation, the relative quality within your peer set or within the world even, and what you believe customers are willing to, willing to pay. And looking at data and understanding the four price considerations is very important as you go into pricing decisions. Tori was mentioning like thinking about what I'm doing and so often like grounding yourself a little with some of that data around how's your wine quality been, what's your brand strength, where do you fit in the marketplace and the external forces that are happening are important to think about as you uh, go into those price setting conversations. And then when you're changing price to be really thoughtful and prepared not to, it is an art, uh, I say it's both an art and a science, which is like the subtitle of luxury wine marketing, uh, but in pricing in particular is more of an art because you can have all the data, it doesn't tell you necessarily what to do or what the right thing is to do. So there is a bit of a feel associated with that as well and what's the balance of art and science. And, and I don't think a lot of people track secondary market pricing and I think that's probably something that needs to be done more of in our industry 
to really understand what's happening in the marketplace. What are consumers telling us back around what they believe our wines are worth? So that's, uh, that's it. Yeah, feel free to contact me and I think we have Q&A. Just to start the conversation, I have a question for you before we pass the, the, the mic on to the audience. Let's talk about scarcity. What does scarcity communicate for fine wines? Scarcity or the illusion of scarcity. Not just scarcity because it is true, it is actual, but also the illusion of scarcity. What's your read about this? Everyone wants what they can't have. So scarcity does have an element of creating more demand, can create. I think there's different types of scarcity because you have true scarcity, not just in the sense of like supply is great or is less than demand, but like it's just a really small amount, like the Liber Potter example, right? There's only 550 bottles out there. So it's really a rare singular item that's collectible uh, versus you can have scarcity for a 5,000 case production, but it's more what I would call excess demand. And I think that excess demand creates a notion in consumers that people, people want it and that it's valuable. And so there's becomes, in the, from the luxury sense, a privilege to own it. Because luxury, and whether you agree with this or not, but the point of luxury is that it differentiates people. And that it says, like a Birkin bag, which is like an Hermes bag, that the bag could be completely the same as any other bag, but because people, other people know that that's a Birkin bag and that's hard to get and very expensive, that it connotates something about you that is, that is differentiated from everyone else. And therefore, um, that type of scarcity creates a, a differentiation, which is what people are willing to pay for, for luxury. And on this, on this topic, another question, how dangerous for a brand uh, it, 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 is it to, let's say, artificially create scarcity? I think it depends <laughs> because what are the other, when you're doing it artificially, you can do it in a way that um, no one will ever know about, really. Like if you're just holding more wine for the library and you're keeping it yourself and so what's in the marketplace is truly out there and scarce and that, that becomes scarce, that's, I think, no one's going to hear about it. If people can hear about it because, you know, you're artificially... You're, you're saying that you're allocated and, you know, you can't buy it. And then people ask you to buy it and you say, sure, I can buy it. Or it shows up, you know, at Costco or in retail, then it's not, uh, <laughs> your scarcity message is being undermined by everything else that's happening. So I think that that can be dangerous depending. You have to be very careful when you're creating it to be consistent in your messaging. Thank you. I don't want to steal time away from the audience, so I still have a question, but I keep it for later. So uh, don't be shy. Peter is here. Questions for you. I think we need a mic for... Uh... Hi. Uh, great presentation. I have a question. Um, do you think there's a clear correlation between demand um, and producers or regions that allow value to be kept throughout the uh, supply chain, particularly in three-tier system in the United States. For example, Burgundy versus Bordeaux. Um, I was just in Barolo last week, and there was some where the demand is incredible. And there's some producers that have raised their ex-seller ex pricing to go with that demand, and some that have raised it slightly and allowed uh, value to be kept throughout the system. So what do you think that correlation is and how important it is? Is the question, so I understand it, that... Uh, is the macro regional demand supply 
correlate very correlate with an individual producer? Is that I'm let's take Burgundy and Bordeaux as a specific example. Uh, Bordeaux sells through the Place. Um, there's limited margin to be made despite the high prices, uh, whether you're an importer or a distributor or a restaurant. Burgundy mostly sells through importers and there's value to be made at all three tiers, whether you're a restaurant, an importer, or a distributor. And do you think that that has been uh, allowed Burgundy to continue to increase their demand versus Bordeaux, which is still has demand, but not the same way that Burgundy does today? I, I think part of that is, um, not to say, but a lot of Burgundians are mostly farmers and vignerons and not as much. They don't have as many staff for the business side. So they're not allocating optimally is what I would say across their global markets. And so you can have the same Burgundy being um, $100 in South Africa or, or somewhere and $1,000 in the US. And so that to me is more about misalignment of allocation um, and understanding where their demand is and allocating appropriately so that the margin should equilibrate. The other parts of the supply chain shouldn't be having these outsized margins and there's arbitrage opportunities. In fact, there's some companies that take advantage of this arbitrage opportunity and buy from one region and sell another in another, especially the investment uh, focused firms. So that is creating arbitrage, which in a competitive market with good supply chains and things like that shouldn't exist. I've got a question slash comment on the point three, the message of brand reputation. What we've seen when we've asked producers how they come up to set their price and, and how they arrived to that decision. A lot of them have been quite honest saying, the only reason I can, I can sell that wine for that price is because I'm working with Pinot Noir or Cabernet Sauvignon, or because I come from Burgundy or because I come from Napa. So how important do you think in the brand reputation, the collective reputation of you know, something bigger than the producer, but something that comes with the grape variety reputation or the region collective image, like, can you sell an $800 bottle of Grenache from wherever that's not really known? Like, How does that collective play into the pricing? It has a huge impact because I think it sets your specific peer group and what people are willing to pay, and there's a, an established demand. It's not to say that you can't, and there's examples all over the world with even like a Vega Sicilia that created the whole category of Roberto Duero of creating a wine that does... Uh, establish itself singularly outside of its region, in that case, even created its own region. Um, so you can do it, it's just harder. You just have to go down a harder path and and meet more collectors and prove that you're you're worth it. Or the other examples of even the reason Napa is, is so powerful to begin with today is from the Judgment of Paris in 76. And so other ways were, were what you know I talked about Gaia did, your people are able to do it you just then have to change your base of who you're comparing yourself to and convince the world and, and wine buyers that, uh, that that is the right way to think about it. And so it's a lot easier if, you know, your neighbor is selling everything for $500 a bottle then, you know. Okay, Peter, thank you. My name is Victor. Uh, my question would be, what do you consider to be the biggest challenge for wine pricing, um, especially now with global inflation? the crisis um, and the war in Ukraine and, and the rest of all that. Now, the second point um, added to this, it's for developing countries in Africa with huge interest or interested in importing. Uh, what do you think the pricing strategy should be for producers in Europe, especially because these economies were 
potential consumers have very limited um, access to be able to afford the kind of uh, quality wines that they would wish to have. So those are my questions. Okay, um, so the first question was, how do you think about pricing in the inflationary environment that we're in today and the, the difficult financial markets? I think you have to be careful and do your best probably not to increase price too much because people are having this impact, especially at the, the higher end where oh, maybe where I'm based more so in Silicon Valley. If I was based in Houston, it might be different because the energy world is making a lot of money. But uh, in Silicon Valley, a lot of people have lost a large percentage of their wealth uh, due to the crash in stocks like Meta and, and Google and whatnot, Amazon. And so it's it's harder for them to pay even more money for, for that wine. And at the same time, wineries have increasing cost pressures. Great pricing is going up, labor, everything is more expensive. So you, you may have to run lower margin for a shorter period of time, but then hopefully continue to build your brand and loyalty from your customer base to help you increase pricing later. I think the second question was around how should European wineries think about pricing in Africa where there's a great demand for the wines, but they don't have uh, necessarily the ability to pay some of the higher prices. Uh, I think if it's you know truly a huge growth opportunity in the long term, you might consider you know investing in marketing and sampling to allow people to try the wines, even maintaining your price point because this is a, some a global marketplace and you can't you can have some dislocations between regions, but if they're dramatic, people are going to know about it and not want to buy the wine, right? Or 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 know that they're not getting a, a great deal. I've heard of people in China, like they still use Wine Searcher to see what the price of wine is in the US and other places to know that they're not getting you know, ripped off from, from the people trying to sell them wine. So I think you still need to keep a relatively uh, stable or you know, correlated price globally. So I wouldn't discount there to try to drive demand, but maybe invest in, in marketing and have people try it and to build the brand so that when they do have the ability and money to buy the wines that they're there for that. Hi, Peter. Um, I was wondering, uh, currently, what do you think the most impactful, influenceable factors are for luxury brand reputation on the global market? What are the things that brand managers and others can actually influence today? Uh, that's a very big question <laughs> and, and very broad. Um, so what can brand managers influence for uh, luxury wines. I mean, they can influence everything, <laughs> I think. Um, you know, new categories are being created all the time and you can establish yourself as luxury. I, I, I think the, the big thing with that is that it takes time and that you can't become, and it's very rare to become an overnight sensation, even if you look at, you know, I look at my experience in California and there's a, a very small production wine called Ultramarine, which is a sparkling wine that has become sort of a, a darling of critics and a bit of a cult classic. There's a good secondary market premium. It still took, when you talk to Michael Cruz, it still took like five to seven years, not just to make the wine, but also to build that reputation, to drive that demand, to have it done. And so, uh, you know, there's everything you could do to, there's a lot of things you could do to influence. When I look at, when I was helping to run the brand uh, Realm Cellars in Napa, we completely overhauled the label design and how people, the storytelling of how people uh, connected with the brand 
And that created a lot more interest and understanding, as well as, you know, getting a bunch of, at the same time, getting a bunch of top scores and 100 points and whatnot. So that helped create more demand for the wine to get people more connected to the story and connected to the individual wines than it was before. I have a question for um, the U.S. market as it relates to gray market pricing. Um, so obviously there is, you know, the mandatory 3-2 system and, and we're dealing with global supply coming into the U.S. Um, do you have any advice or examples to give around how to manage that very difficult conversation, either that being with the importer or the collector, to talk about that price disparity? You mean the just the price disparity uh, or... The ability to purchase. So you have um, an allocation of a prestige wine coming in. Importer is given a certain ex-seller price. All of a sudden on the market is an ex-seller from another country coming in. Collectors having access to two potentially quite differently priced opportunities to buy from different sourced markets. Part of that is understanding what the end price would be to the consumer. So if someone's buying the wine from London, uh, you know, in bond or whatnot, then will they have to pay VAT? What's the shipping going to be? If you're buying like a bottle of wine, you're trying to ship it across the world, that could be extremely expensive by the time you get it. So, you know, comparing the value then that each layer of the system is adding uh, can can help with that or the, the actual price to the consumer. If there is still a big... there. There shouldn't be a big disparity. If there is, then the, there's something wrong. <laughs> I think somewhere. Okay, we're going to take one last question from Robert, and then we're going to have to close. Robert, I'm going to give you my... Thank you. Um, I guess this is really the, the, the million-dollar or multi-million-dollar question. And you kind of alluded to it when you talked about what's happened in Silicon Valley to a lot of people's wealth there. We have seen... I lived in Burgundy when 10 or $15 was quite... With, okay, my point is the price of wine has gone up and up and up. And we are sitting here talking about $850 for a bottle of liquid that we consume. Is this going to go on forever? Or do you see a point at which we say this is a maximum that people are going to pay in any volume for a bottle of liquid? Robert, you stole my question. <laughs> I think that's there's short-term and, okay. and long-term, right? So people that say the same thing about real estate too, right? Like real estate in the long-term goes up. Why does it go up? Well, there's a thing called inflation that we're experiencing now. And inflation makes everything go up. So on a nominal basis, I'm saying this as an economist, I guess, but as a, on, a, on a nominal basis, like, sure, it's going to be more expensive because money will be worth less. And that same, so on a nominal basis, it will go up. Can people still afford to buy? I think it depends what it is and the demand for it. When you talk to William Ke Kelly of The Wine Advocate, for Burgundy, the production levels are so small that one person can create the market for, one billionaire in China creates the market for that wine and can outpay people by two or three times. And so as long as you keep finding that one person with a really small production, that's fine. If you're talking about 25,000 cases of you know Lafitte or, or Margot or something like that, you need a lot more people. And so that's going to be more market-driven and more of a barrier as to how many people you can find who are willing to pay that price. Okay, I'm going to close. But before, I wanted to say one thing. Um, I know Peter's slides. First of all, Erica, you, uh, as 
a gentleman came up to me after your presentation and said, we couldn't read the slides, especially in the back. So then, then I saw Peter's slides. So I don't know where this gentleman is, but you are in for a treat. So I have some good news, however. Okay, all of the slides and the presentation. There's no live streaming. However, we will be putting them on the platform, um, the Vinitly Plus platform, basically, where you have registered. It will be available for, um, uh, you can replay many times as you want with the slides included. It will be available towards the end of the month. Okay, and then we will give you, I think, three months period for you to replace. So don't go crazy, okay, and don't come up to me again and say that you can't read the slides because it was incredibly dense. But I want to also echo Etter's recommendation. Please go buy the book. If you are interested in fine wine marketing, this is a benchmark book. This is why I fell in love with Peter Young's book, and I said he has to be here for, for today. So let's give it up for Ettore Nicoletto and Peter Young. Thank you very much. You guys have a small break now and come back here. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin.